Welcome to Let's Talk with Dr. Bats. We're in the studio with Larry Spagnola. Uh, Larry, it is a pleasure to have you here with us, man. Thank you. Yeah, we, we have an exciting conversation before us. Uh, you're an author. You're from the Lehigh Valley. I'm going to let you self-identify. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How do you describe yourself? What do you want the world to know about you? I'm, uh, my nieces are, are fond of saying that's my uncle. He's on his third midlife crisis because <laughs> I've, I've tried my hand at uh, a couple of things in life and most recently as a screenwriter and an author out in Los Angeles. And I've had some good fortune along the way. And, uh, and it's really nice to pursue your dream and, and to see it come to fruition. So I've done about three books, two movies, and I'm working on a third movie and a fourth book. So okay. so far, so good. Okay, what's, what's been your favorite project? Probably the Holocaust movie I did with Anna Paquin. That was very gratifying because I got to meet this woman who was like a female Schindler. Mm-hmm. She had saved over 2,000 Jewish children from the Warsaw Ghetto. Wow. And I flew to Warsaw to research the project and was told that I could meet with the woman who ran the underground who actually was still alive at the age of 97. Wow. And they gave me 20 minutes. And we went in there and we hit it off. And the daughter said, just keep talking. And we went for two hours. There was a lot of history there. Incredible. Yeah. What did it feel like in the space? Like, like could you feel like the energy? I felt uh, kind of little like in awe of this person who had outwitted the nazis for four years had snuck these kids out of the warsaw ghetto in garbage bags through the sewers in the hollow bodies of pickup trucks and gotten them to catholic polish catholic parents who would absorb them into their families teach them roman catholic prayers and have them kind of pose as their children Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then after the war she was able to reunite many of the parents who had survived the concentration camps with their children again. So, so, so this, your favorite movie was about like the human will for good, for love, for community, which is interesting because it brings us to the book that had you reach out to us, right? Now we get dozens, hundreds of people reach out to us, but there was something about your email and the project that you had worked on and how timely it was, right? What I felt made, what, so. What made you reach out? It was really, I, I had just gotten a couple of phone calls from good friends of mine who said, you really need to be speaking out now. This Tyree Nichols thing is resonating with people. There are articles in the New York Times, all over the country, to the LA Times about how this beating has resonated with people who remember Rodney King's ordeal. 30 years prior and how little had changed. It was like the proof that we are still dealing with many of the issues we fought with in 1991. 30 years later. I'm watching that clip and I'm thinking, we've been here before. Exactly. So, so, So your friends reached out to you and said, you need to do something. You need to say something. You reached out to us uh, and you, and you wrote a book side by side with Rodney King. I had that opportunity. Yes. In 2011. So for folks that don't know who Rodney King is, give us the, the, the quick overview of who he was, what the situation was. First of all, he was never called Rodney King. His name was Glenn King. He was known by every loving member of his family as Glenn. Wow. But he told, I said, why did it go to Rodney? He says, because Rodney looks better in newspaper print. Nobody wants to talk about a Glenn King, but a Rodney King. Wow. Yeah, that somehow rang a bell. So that was the first oddity. But Rodney and it, was. It so- sounds blacker, too. 
I mean, I don't know if that's the reason, but Rodney sounds like, you know. Well, go ahead. You said. Well, um, he was someone who grew up in two areas, actually. He had grandparents in Sacramento, California, that he loved very deeply and would spend his summers up there. And his love for fishing and outdoors, I think, came from being up there. And then in L.A., he came from the Altadena, Pasadena area uh, of Los Angeles, and that's where he and his brothers grew up and pretty much went to school. And Rodney had a very difficult childhood with an abusive alcoholic father and a very loving mother, religious. And um, he would tell me these stories. And we wrote the book almost as a flow of thought, like whatever Mm. he needed to or felt he should talk about that evening we would talk about. And then you kind of organize And then I could it. cobble everything together yeah. and uh, and make sense and provide a certain through line. Mm-hmm. And, and what I found out about him was that the things that he loved were things I loved. We loved music, and we definitely loved uh, camping outdoors. So okay. those are the okay. areas that we were able to resonate on and uh, build a friendship over the eight months that we kind of had to put the... Uh, so that's how long it took to write the book? Eight well, months? it was pedal to the metal because they wa- HarperCollins uh, wanted this out for the 20th anniversary of the L.A. riots. And okay, okay. that was uh, 1992. So this book was so, published. So, so for folks that don't know the whole story, right? Rodney King was assaulted by these police officers. They were later acquitted, right? That's correct. And then the riots came out of that. That sparked the riots. By that evening, by the evening of the day the acquittal was announced, L.A. was burning. And that's kind of the fear that we see every time there's a police killing or beating and acquittal happens, right? I think there's this concern that the community will, like, have an outrage like they did during the L.A. riots. Yeah, and I, I think that a lot of potential infernos and riots have been probably headed off and stopped because of this and because they know to prepare and say, let's have a peaceful demonstration. That's right. That's right. We do that locally and nationally. We'll go to places where uh, there's this powder keg, right? Because the community is infuriated. And it's really a lot of it is in like the mission and the memory of Rodney King because he said, can't we all just get along? That was a momentous. I mean, he first of all, he had two attorneys that wanted him to read a prepared statement okay. that they had typed out two pages long. Mm-hmm. And he said, Larry, I was trying to think of what I wanted to say, what I wanted to say. And they hand me this pre-written thing. And I just, a lot of the words flew out of my head that I wanted to say. But the thing that had stuck with me from the night before was, let's get along. Can't we all just get along? And I just repeated that a couple of times and felt that that was more than anything I could have read from a prepared statement. I see his face when I hear that statement. I remember it so vividly, man. Um, So this is a man that that survived that brutal beating that we all saw. I mean, this was before cell phones, right? Wait, How did he even get caught on camera? I don't know that. I I was probably like 15 years old at the time. It's a great story. This guy, George Holliday, had been given a present of a brand new camcorder. And he was trying it out on really? his balcony of his apartment. Really? And he's flipping around, trying at different apertures, at different speeds, at different bells and whistles that came with the thing. And he looks across the street, and there's this police beating going on. Yeah. So he just calmly lifts up the camera and films it. It's credited as having been the first viral video. 
because before the internet, That's before right. cell phones had That's great right. video cameras, he had this and this thing ran around the world in less than 24 hours. Everyone, everyone, if you were alive in 91, you saw that video. Isn't that, and, and that was an incredible feat at the time when you recall that That's the right. technology wasn't there was There was no Instagram yet. or Snapchat, right? Nope. This yeah. was just news stations that George had negotiated the sale of the footage. And then they, of course, worked out their deals with their other affiliates. Mm -hmm. And little by little, this thing was in Japan by that evening. I mean, it was amazing wow. the way it went around the world. And, uh, and I think it was the first time that we saw the realities that people in communities of color have that's lived That's it, exactly, Doctor. It's, it's been credited as the first time that brutality of that level, which had been talked about, was finally put right it in It wasn't believed, though, right? Like, like some, you have to see it to believe it for some people, right? Absolutely. No, they, and, and that was the proof. And that, that was kind of irrefutable. There it is. Look at it. So, so how did Rodney feel about all of this? I mean, he, he was a household name. The videographer made a name off of him. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot had happened and come from his assault. Like, how did he feel? What was his take on all of this? Well, he's he was overwhelmed in in many aspects and and would retreat to his mother's house or or wrap himself with family. And I think that kept him sane and that mm -hmm. kept him moving forward because he said, "Larry, imagine a two year period where every morning you get a phone call from your attorney telling you what to wear, where to be, and what was expected of you." And that went. My family went through that wow. for 18 months, yeah. and and he said. And then afterwards, there were numerous requests for him to be on talk shows and other things. And, and he had just had enough. I he, would think even in the grocery store, people recognized him. You know, he told me. He said, "I love baseball." He said, "The nicest thing about the evening that the trial was over was that." I wasn't getting calls from these lawyers anymore telling me where to go. And I could finally talk about the thing I wanted to talk about was the, the Dodgers and their yeah. prospects for making the playoffs and things like that. But he also was curious about the riots that ignited that mm -hmm. night. Mm -hmm. And actually, it's a crazy story. He wanted to get a peek at what was going on in downtown L.A. So he put on a Bob Marley Rasta wig that his kids and he had used during Halloween. He put that on to kind of disguise himself. And then he went downtown and he got within about a mile of the carnage and the inferno. And he heard gunshots and he mm. turned, he said, what are you doing here? Get out of here. Yeah. The yeah. last thing you need is to get involved in anything. Oh. And at that point, if he were speeding or something, doctor, and a cop would stop him and see that it was Rodney King, he would just say, get out of here. Like, really? Yeah, he was he was very much like kryptonite. You know, no cop wanted anything to do with him. Wow. What was his life like post the assault? Because I, I hear you talking about like this ongoing trauma of having to relive this, go through these cases, get these calls from, from attorneys and, and the media. What, what was his life like otherwise? Like, was he ever able to find peace and to settle? When he camped, when he could go out camping and mm -hmm. fishing, that's when he had his That's moments like his of solitude and, and, yeah, could, okay. could relax. But, uh, no, he was hounded, and, and Rodney's uh, was under the spotlight for years after that, and he found it to be pretty relentless. And uh, it was something that he had no stomach for. He really yeah. didn't savor uh, the limelight at all. It's not like he was a uh, 
comedian or an actor or someone that chose to be in that spotlight, right? I, I would imagine his life changed March 3rd, 1991 to where he became that household name. Yeah, and he, he uh, many times had to sit at home and watch the trial on TV, which was even more exasperating to him because mm -hmm. he really wanted to take the stand and his lawyers would not let him. It's one of the things he regretted to his dying day that he had not had his chance to speak. Wow. So, so I'm assuming the book was his opportunity to speak. This was the first time that the world could hear his voice. You and him got together. The book is called The Riot Within, My Journey from Rebellion to Redemption by Rodney King with uh, Lawrence Spagnola. And is that accurate? Was this his first time that he was able to really tell his story and... and well, yes, it was really the first time, I think, where he was clear-headed and excited about telling his story. Mm -hmm. He needed time to heal a lot. And people have to understand that a lot of the injuries that uh, he sustained just stayed with him through life. He couldn't sit in a chair at a restaurant. He had to be in a booth so he could slide around and wow. move because after 15 minutes, he'd kind of cramp up and have to just change positions. He had uh, suffered a broken pelvis in, a, in an automobile accident too. But a lot of the uh, misery that he sustained was this brutal cycle of using opioids to deaden the pain mm -hmm. and then realizing that he was kind of going into hell and then getting off of the opiates and having to deal with the pain again. And this was a vicious cycle for him for years. That came out of a... a getting pulled over for a traffic stop, right? Yeah, well, he was speeding. I mean, he the thing about Rodney that he was very open about was that it was the not the times when he was depressed or tired, but it was the times when he felt good that he would get in trouble. Hmm, wow. He said well, he said Larry, as soon as I like had stopped being on you know, opiates or painkillers for two or three weeks and I started to feel like good my good old self again and shooting baskets and enjoying the fresh air outdoors, he said, that's when I had to be most wary of what I needed to do next. And oftentimes that was jumping in a car with some friends and a few 40s and heading out into the night. And it just ended up in tragically oftentimes. Yeah. And, and that night, his very simple explanation for why he didn't pull over the first time he saw the lights from the police car in his rearview mirror was this very... I, I think almost primal urge. He said, the longer I could speed and keep away from the police officers, the longer I was a free man. And I knew once I stopped mm. that car, it was over for me. You knew it was coming. Yeah. Thank you. So, so we are here with Larry Spagnola. This is Dr. Batts. You're on Let's Talk. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back. WDIY Allentown, 88.1, Lehigh Valley Public Radio. Many choices, real voices. Welcome back to Let's Talk with Dr. Bats. We're in the studio with Larry Spagnola, author of The Riot Within uh, with Rodney King. Subtitle is The Journey from Rebellion to Redemption. This book looks like it's amazing, Larry. You reached out to us originally because everything that was going on with Tyree Nichols felt so familiar, right? And when we think about just not only the idea of police brutality, but this idea of like the bystander effect, right? So we're thinking about Tyree Nichols. There were there were four officers that assaulted Rodney King, as well as fire departments that observed it. There were five officers that assaulted Tyree Nichols. And even when we think about George Floyd, there were four officers that assaulted him and were convicted of this. Um, 
did this come up, this idea that it wasn't just one officer, but that there were multiple parties involved? Like, did that come up in your meetings with Rodney and in your, in your thoughts? I mean, I think what Rodney was most surprised over was the first person that spoke to him when he got out of the car for speeding was a female police officer. Okay. And he said to her, please tell those cops I'll do whatever they want. And the police officer, the woman said, just get on the ground. And he thought, all right, this is going to be manageable. And he said he never saw her again. She disappeared. The four police officers descended on him, and he, you know, suffered the consequences. Lifelong consequences. Evidently, um, some of the wounds never quite healed. He broke his ankle, and some other things happened. And at one point, he even claimed to have an out-of-body experience. He said, I was floating over myself watching me die. I was choking on my blood, and... um, I had been hit so many times, I had lost track, and I was really seeking some sort of exit, some way to stop the pain. Yeah. And then he's, he's had this moment where he thought about everyone that had preceded him of his color and the pain and beatings they had gone through, and he felt ashamed. And he felt like he should, he followed his mother's voice back into his body, and he, he said, I'm very proud that I did that, that I didn't choose at that point in my life to just check out. Wow. And it's, it's something where I don't try and preach and say, you need to believe that actually happened. I listened to him tell me that, and, and we were able to record it. And I believe that uh, something extraordinary did happen to him that evening. I think, I think one of the most extraordinary and memorable things about Rodney's story and journey is that it was not an isolated incident and that he really drew light to this idea of police brutality, death by police, fear. And so you and him became friends. You were part of hearing his his part of the story, right? Tell me about the moment you saw the Tyree Nichols beating. What what came to mind? How'd you feel? It just made me sick. I mean, I, I kind of had a this very sad but familiar sickness in my gut that, oh my God, you know, I knew that these comparisons would come up in the press and, and in the media and with social media. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I thought that it's, it must be hard to be a teenager in this time and, and look at this and realize that the same thing was going on 30 years ago. That's right. And I'm, you have to understand, doctor, I come from a family that uh, has had cousins that are in law enforcement. I'm very proud of them. From the federal level to the local level, chief of police in one case, and someone uh, who worked with the FBI. And so we're proud of those cousins and and the job that they have done and and the reputation that they have brought to our family. And, And yet there's this flip side where it's, I don't know if it's training or if the officers get uh, caught up in the moment, but there just seems to be these really unfortunate, and people always say there's a few bad apples and you can't let everyone suffer because there's a few bad apples. But there are some professions where you can't have bad apples. That's right. You can't have a few bad apples in the airline industry. That's you know? right. Neurosurgeons or something going, like that. Yeah. We had a bad yeah. pilot, so that plane went down. Yeah, you know? I mean, he was a serious. bad apple. That's, that's real. And, it, and so— It's about accountability, right? 
very much and that, so. And that's so. So part of what I see your work as is creating a counter narrative, right? Storytelling, the beauty of storytelling, but it also these are also books about accountability. And it's strange for me because I I believe that it's training. I believe that the responsibility is in preparing these officers, these candidates for extraordinary situations That's right. where they can't let their emotions get caught up. And it must be hard. It has to be the most difficult thing, especially if you feel that your life is being threatened. And a lot of the videos I hear that they show when they're training officers about approaching cars during traffic, routine traffic stops, is how many of these routine traffic stops turn into really heinous incidents. So you're saying they, they're possibly <clears throat> on high alert as they approach this yes, car. Yes. I, I hear you. What message do you have for the world and specifically for officers? What do you want people to know about your work, Rodney King, your vision for the world? Well, that's a. I, I think that the first thing that comes to mind is the thing that turned the corner for Rodney, and that was forgiveness isn't about them it's about you mm -hmm. if you have the depth and the and and the compassion to forgive you are letting yourself breathe again that's right it's free you're letting your spirit open up again and i feel like that's the most important lesson to be learned is that we're not going to conquer and we're not going to rid ourselves of these incidences with bitterness and rancor and revenge it's got to come from love. It's got to come from wow. our desire to rise above this as That's a right. race. That's right. Radical love. You said it. Yeah, it's easier said than done, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's but if you if you can have that compassion, I think we can take this down. Take That's this right. evil down. I appreciate you you saying that. So so let's talk about your work. What's next for you? I'm uh, really happy about a, a project I'm working on, and uh, it's crazy. It seems like my life bounces back and forth between rock and roll and the Holocaust and then back to uh, uh, civil rights. And it's about this wonderful hotel that existed in Cleveland, Ohio, of all places, uh, during the 60s, 70s, and 80s. It was run by a Greek family, the Swingos family, and this guy bought this hotel. He was about ready to go under. He was bankrupt because downtown Cleveland was insolvent. It was going to be mm -hmm. bankrupt. And this guy shows up at the door and says, I'd like to check out three floors of your hotel. And he, means, he said, you mean three rooms? He said, no, three floors. We're going to need the upper three floors. It's a 10-story apartment. Uh, I'm sorry, hotel. So he shows him the three floors. The guy's wearing a funny hat. And he shakes his hand. He says, can I take a look at your hotel menu before I leave? And it turns out that it was the colonel for Elvis. And Elvis loved the hotel menu so much, he decided to stay there instead of the Hilton or the Sheridan. Wow. So he stays at this Swingo's Hotel that's on the brink of going under. And after that, the phone never stopped ringing. He had a Just great because time. because Elvis stayed there. Because Elvis stayed there. He's like saved by the king. Long so live the king. That's your next project. That's what you're working well, it's, on Well, it's about the 15 years after that that everybody from Prince to Led Zeppelin to Frank Sinatra to Sly and the Family Stone stayed there because it was like this Midwest mecca that everyone could kind of let their hair down and enjoy the place. So it sounds like you write about people. I love to write about people that have 
fought the odds. And, people and, that have fought the odds. You know? Hence and, the Holocaust, hence the civil rights. And where's that come from? Why do you care so much? I don't know. I guess uh, I think a lot of it has to come from the fact that my father and grandfather told me about stories. My grandfather came over from Italy in 1898 at the age of eight years old. And um, he had, you know, was one of these guys that just believed in the American dream. But they had a lot of setbacks, my family. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I remember my dad even telling me about the best thing that ever happened to him was World War II because he got away from this backward-thinking environment that he was in that was very, very prejudicial towards Italian-Americans mm-hmm. and um, got to a place where the prejudice wasn't there. It was the U.S. military, and he, he was treated just as harshly as everybody else, but he also had time to make friends and learn how to play tennis and some crazy things that he would have never had the opportunity and he was stationed in Guantanamo Bay uh, in the Navy during uh, World War II. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was turned out to be his salvation. I've always felt more, more at ease rooting for the underdog. Wow. It's just a great feeling. Yeah. You know, I, even, I even wish the Eagles had been underdogs in the Super Bowl. Because mm. <laughs> you can see what being the favorite can happen. Yeah, don't say that too, too, too <laughs> loud, right? So, so you have the, these stories of like survival from your grandfather and your father that have really pushed you forward to, as you said, rooting for the underdog, to sitting with Rodney King, to caring about Tyree Nichols. What message do you have for... And I'm going to say this, right? The next Rodney King and the next Tyree Nichols, because we know it's coming, right? What message do you have for the officers, the community, like the people that have survived? What from Rodney's life can you can you share that might inspire the next person? I'll just take a chapter from, from Rodney's fiance, Cynthia. Take a minute to breathe. Take a minute to think about what is unfolding in front of you and just exhale mm. and just Make an effort to remember all the people in life that have cut you a break or that have stepped in to help you at a time where you could have easily slid into despair and hopelessness and try to have compassion. Yeah, that's that's a great one for the officers, right? Take a minute just to breathe. Recognize the humanity that's sitting in front of you. And I think you also spoke to something else, that there can be lifelong consequences for you as well as for the person that you're assaulting. Absolutely. I mean, these, these are, are stigmas. These are deep, deep impressions that are going to stay with you for life. Mm-hmm. And, and you have to bear that, that, that cross. And I, and I think that whereas they'll say, listen, a death penalty a, a, never stopped a criminal from committing murder. And you, you see there's studies about this. And my whole feeling is that what you've got to do is be in the moment and seize that opportunity to just exhale and breathe and say, how can I avoid this train wreck that I see I'm quickly approaching? Like, really try and yeah. we, you know, we, we give have an, pause. I have an elder, Phyllis Alexander, that always tells me we have to do something, right? So as well as the individual taking a moment to breathe, I, I want to add to that that there's this idea of disrupting. No more bystanders. We can't sit by and watch people be harmed, whether it's cyberbullying, whether it's something in school, whether it's bullying at the workplace. We as a community and as a people have to disrupt. We have to speak up. We have to do something. Your something is writing and storytelling. It's a gift. It really is. And you can't squander your gifts, right? right. What you're given in life are your tools. 
Use them. Be proud of them. And I've been extremely fortunate. How many people can sit down and go, you know, like, I really want to write movies and books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but for me, it was a tough learning curve. But I'm so glad looking back over the last 20 years that I had the opportunity to But you're to using do this. them to change the world. You're not only using them to get the Ferrari and the big house in L.A. You're using them to change the world, to make a difference. Your writing is social activism is what I'm hearing. Thank you, doctor. And, and I'm not that successful. I'm using them to get the Hyundai and the condo. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but it's making a difference. You're carrying stories. Thank you, Larry. It's been a pleasure. In closing, anything you want to share? How do people find you? How do they find more about the book, the movies? Well, thank you very much. Um, Definitely on the HarperCollins site and on uh, anywhere on Amazon, you can get the book. Okay. And and also the Guns N' Roses book that kind of opened the door for this one. And Steven Adler, the drummer for Guns N' Roses, a shout out to you. Thank you for making the introduction for me to meet Rodney King. And then... um, also, globalhousingmission.org. I've started a company that uh, provides housing for uh, low-income families, the homeless, and um, veterans. Wow. Where's this at? Uh, this is uh, in, mainly in Los Angeles right now, but I'm trying to bring it to the East Coast. Globalhousingmission.org. we got to bring you back on to talk about that. I mean, Thank you. Housing is, is, is a huge issue. So you wrote a book for Guns and Roses also. Yes, I did. Uh, My Appetite for Destruction. And... It was my first book, and and I had great people around me, a great support group that helped. My Appetite for Destruction. Check out My Appetite for Destruction. The book we're here talking about right now is called The Riot Within. And listen, we may have to talk about uh, this book that I have on my mind that we can get together. And Absolutely. I just got bright. I like that. I've, I've got two in the right now that are in the in the breach that are ready to go. I mean, it's it's fun because people will come to me and they'll say, my aunt was murdered. And it's an incredible story. I'm dealing now with this roommate from college who has this amazing story to tell. And you can't imagine some of the pain and and some of the atrocities that happen. I I found out about this nurse who had been like the angel of death that had injected people in the Lehigh Valley here. That's that's a whole nother interview for that one, right? That's that's deep stuff. Yeah. And do you know one of them was my aunt? One of the people that Lucy was my grandfather's sister. And she was one of the ones that suffered from his inje- these random injections. Wow. And, and it's unbelievable. It's like there's – I think when you share these, people will share their pain. And I think that's one of the greatest ways to heal. That's right. You know, I'm here to help heal. Healing. <laughs> healing through storytelling. Larry, thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for being a witness to people's pain. Thank you for being a healer. This is Dr. Bats. Let's talk. We've spent the day talking to Larry Spagnola. Be well. Until next time. <laughs>